The Lodge by Robert McMinn Chapter 7 I must say it was a relief to get the boxes up in the loft because, and not before time, the house finally looked like somewhere we lived rather than a place we were still moving into. And as the autumn moved on and my body clock got used to the idea that I wasn't getting up at six every day for work, I settled into my new routine. My favourite room all day long, apart from when I was painting, was the morning room. This wasn't a room I'd want to paint in, because the light changed throughout the day, but it was a restful space facing east, and it got the sun in the morning, but then remained temperate for the rest of the day as the sun moved around the house, and that side stayed in shadow. So I set up camp here with my laptop, and spent the morning dealing with admin, reading the news, writing the occasional email to old friends, and updating my web gallery, through which I sold the occasional painting. If the weather was fine, there was plenty to do around the garden. The grass kept growing well into October, so I was out on the tractor mow every week or so. It took about 45 minutes to mow all the grass, and another half an hour or so to use a smaller mower around the fiddly bits. I felt weird to be owning two mowers, but there had been one here, and the other one had come up with us in the van. It turned out to be very useful, having two, because I wasn't really skilled enough on the tractor mower to deal with the narrower spaces. After my occasional visits to the wood, I might also spend some time chopping up logs or trimming fallen branches on the sawhorse with a small chainsaw. I didn't enjoy doing this as much as I'd hoped, because the chainsaw was fiddly and temperamental, needing constant adjustment and cleaning when it got clogged with sawdust. I wondered if Mr Moffat would be available at some point to talk me through whatever it was I was doing wrong. I also considered hiring him to have a look at our woodland so I could begin to nurture it into robust health. That tract of woodland a few miles away was not the only wood Grace now owned. There was one that abutted our property that was also part of it and which had not been sold off to the local farmer. So we could hop over a fence and go and have a walk in our own woods. There was also a public footpath that cut across the corner of our property, and then into the woods and out across the countryside. I found it quite pleasant to wave at the occasional rambler who came through. Being outside so much, I grew familiar with some of the animals and birds in the area. Grace had filled the garden with feeders, and would always have a pair of small binoculars to hand when she was planting bulbs or pulling up weeds. She would call out when she spotted something interesting, Pipit! Woodlock! And so on. I was never quick enough to see what she was indicating. There was that small patch of woodland close to the edge of the property, and it was in this direction that she was usually scanning with her binoculars, spotting the occasional red squirrel. There were also birds of prey in the area, red kites, goshawks, kestrels, merlins, and once a short-eared owl was seen by us both flying low over one of the fields in the farm. One of the odder visitors, odder even than some of the ramblers, was a donkey, who would wander up from somewhere and stand, with just his head showing, looking over one of the dry stone walls. I assumed he belonged to the farmer. It was a very light grey colour with a black stripe running all the way down his back to his tail. Grace would take over to him a bag full of dried up bits of bread and feed him until he wandered off. He must have been domesticated because I swear that on one of his visits he had a white scarf or something around his neck. As to the night noises, they hadn't stopped, 
but they varied in style and intensity. We settled on the idea that it was a pine marten, and having done some research, Grey started trying to tempt it with some food. She went to the farm shop and bought some very fresh eggs and left one on the floor near the barn. She had spotted some footprints there and was convinced they were Martha's. Oh yeah, given that her Latin name was Martes Martes, Grace had christened her Martha. And so our protected species guest had a name and I think it settled Grace's nerves to treat her as a semi-pet. The footprints near the barn became the spot for leaving egg-shaped offerings and it's true that the eggs always disappeared. Personally, I wasn't terribly sure the pine martin was taking them. Perhaps it was a fox, perhaps something else. But anyway, Grace became a little bit less nervous about being in the house on her own. Anyway, what with all the woodland creatures, the birds, the donkey and whatever it was we heard screeching in the woods at night, we really felt like we lived in the countryside. There were tawny owls out there, but the screeching was more likely a barn owl. And the best part of being in the depths of the countryside was the night sky. On milder evenings, we would turn all the lights out in the house and sit out in a couple of garden chairs, our eyes getting accustomed to the dark. And we'd look up to see stars and then more and more and more of them until the great band of the Milky Way was filling our vision. Meanwhile, we had a couple more visitors staying at the stables and we began to get inquiries about our retreat. Here's what we were offering. A single, unadorned but comfortable room, peace and quiet, three meals a day delivered to the room if required, plenty of opportunities for long walks or quiet contemplation at home, with a sitting room equipped with comfortable chairs, good reading lights and a wood-burning stove reserved for guests, so as to provide a change of scene whilst maintaining privacy. Mrs Moffat was very versatile, married as she was to a meat-and-two-veg working man, but sister as she was to the proprietor of Walk Right Back to Happiness. So we could offer stir-fries, noodles, ham and eggs, sweet and sour, twice-baked potatoes, tuna bait, just about anything, really. Grace and I had agreed between us that while guests were staying at the retreat, we would keep environmental noise to a minimum, so no lawn mowing while they were around, no chainsaws, no radio or podcast, no music. I was quite happy to stick on a pair of noise-cancelling headphones or to disappear up to my studio to paint. This had all been explained to the agreeable Mrs Moffat, who was ready to ramp up her working hours as and when required. I'd adopted one of the bedrooms, one that faced north, and I'd turned it into a very neat and tidy and well-ventilated workroom. I had my canvases in there, a desktop computer, and all my paints laid out ready to use. The door had a lock on it, so it was inaccessible to any curious guests. I also had my powerful work light in there, and Jim Moffat, Mrs Moffat's brother-in-law, had been around to add a couple of extra sockets to our bedroom and this room in particular, so I now had four where there had once been one. While he was at it, we got him to put double sockets in all the other upstairs rooms, so it wasn't quite like living in the dark ages up there. Jim had also run some wiring up into the loft and had installed two overhead lights in there. They weren't hanging down on wires, no room for that, but were positioned flush to the roof, either side of a roof joist, providing good illumination and shadows, unavoidably, in both directions. Jim had also put down a few more sheets of chipboard extending the walkable area. 
This allowed us to go up there on rainy days and sort through the stuff that wasn't ours. There were bags of clothes for all age groups donated to charity, as well as all those vintage newspapers kept for posterity. We'd also opened up the travelling trunk. It had contained somebody's effects. They seemed to date to before Lou and Alex's time, to a time long before anyone known to us had lived there. There was nothing of particular value, but it had been put away with care. I mean, the house already felt like living on a gold mine. The downstairs interiors alone made you feel like you were surrounded by opulence, so we weren't disappointed or anything, but I did get a strange feeling looking at this stuff, which had been carefully packed away, but was really mostly ordinary. There were signs that whoever it belonged to might have been living or posted overseas and had returned home to be married. A couple of the boxes looked like they might be wedding gifts. There was a pair of silk pyjamas in a box from a fancy clothes shop. There was a brand new rosewood tobacco pipe still in a presentation case with pipe cleaners and a folding knife and some very dried tobacco that still smelt faintly of black cherries. The most valuable item was one of those presentation cases of silverware with a complete set of hallmark table cutlery. There were also some delicately packed boxes containing silk socks and a brand new pair of dress shoes, size 7, still wrapped in tissue paper with wooden lasts keeping their shape. We decided not to dispose of any of this stuff and packed it all carefully back into the trunk. I had suggested that it was so old that it more or less belonged to the house rather than the owners. With the extra light up there, we noticed too that there was some kind of handwritten nameplate on the top of the trunk. The script was that old-fashioned copper plate, impossible to decipher really, so we couldn't make out the name. William, somebody? But the address of the house, the lodge, etc. was plain to see, as was the date, 1933. Grace's daughter Kate came for a visit the first time she'd seen the house and she brought her big camera and a full kit of lenses in order to take some high quality photographs for the website. She captured the grounds, all the angles, the woodland, the old driveway under the bridge arch, the reserved sitting room. We lit a fire for the occasion and tried to brighten it up and several of the newly prepared bedrooms. She also went off for a walk following one of the footpaths nearby and took lots of pictures of the fields and moors and the forests and some nearby ruins I hadn't known about. I have to say, the results were spectacular. And since she was there, and since she had her tripod, and since we were fortunate to have a clear night, we had her set up in the garden, turned off all the lights, and encouraged her to capture the spectacular night sky. She was doing exposures of around 20 seconds, pointing the camera at different parts of the sky, and checking the results on the camera's small screen. Even the smallest vibration could spoil the picture, so Grace and I stayed at a distance and Kate triggered the camera remotely using a connection from an app on her phone. So that was the setup. Tripod perfectly situated using its built-in spirit level. Grace and Kate and I sitting on our deck chairs on the patio close to the house. Camera being triggered by a phone app three times in this direction before moving it to point over there. The order of events is important, so I need to get this right. 
We were on the third of these setups with the camera pointed at the northern sky. Kate was intent on her phone screen and had just triggered one of those 20 second exposures when there came an almighty crash from inside the house. We all jumped out of our skins and I jumped up, went through the French window to the conservatory and then into the drawing room. The light switch was on the far side. I turned it on. Now, you're going to think that my turning the light on will have ruined the exposure, and it would have done, but I'm certain that the exposure was done at about the time we heard the crash. And if it wasn't, then it was nearly done. And it took me almost 20 seconds to reach the light switch. I had dark adapted eyes, but I still had to pass through the conservatory and then across the drawing room to reach the switch. Another thing you'll say is that all of us reacting will have created enough vibration that we blurred the exposure. Again, I argue that the shot was done when we heard the crash, and also that we were at a considerable distance from the tripod, which was not on the same surface as us. We were on the stone slabs of the patio, while the tripod was set up on the grass. All of which is leading up to something I'm sure you've realised. First of all, what was the crash? Well, a quick exploration of the downstairs, it sounded as if it came from downstairs, eventually revealed that a porcelain water jug, which had been sitting on a tray since we'd had some drinks that afternoon, was in pieces on the kitchen floor, which was wet with the remaining water in the jug. The second thing was that Kate's last photo was marred by a white smudge in the corner of the frame. Hence the preamble about how long it took me to get to the light switch and how far we all were from the tripod. 80% of the shot is perfect. Night sky, stars as pinpoints and not blurs, and what looks like a startled white face in the lower right-hand corner. <laughs>